Would you turn to James chapter 5? James chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, it's okay. There's one in the seat back in front of you, or it's going to be on the screen here tonight. James chapter 5. We're going to look at some real, real hardcore James type of stuff. James is everybody's mentor for an everyday faith because he believes that our faith can actually be lived, not just be believed. And so what he has done in the weeks that we've spent in this letter is try to get into our bones and bodies the teachings of Jesus, the way of Jesus, and to actually call us to repent in the ways we've not looked like Jesus. And tonight, we got to put on our grown-up pants because He's really going to put us on it. He's really going to put it on us uh, before we close out this letter. So tonight, our teaching is called The End is Near. Show of hands, if you have seen with your own eyes someone with a sandwich board or poster board that has some iteration of The End is Near, Turn or Burn, Judgment's Coming. Yes. Some of us may be thinking of a certain individual who was maybe three blocks from here that was doing that. But if you know what I'm talking about, you're at least familiar with the kinds of signs that say the end is near, right? And so we're going to call this teaching the end is near for three reasons. The first I've just hinted at, if you're now turned to James chapter 5, you see that it's at the very end of this letter. We've got two more weeks in James, so the end is near for our letter and our time in the book of James. The second reason the end is near is in part because of those sandwich boards. Because what James is going to do is issue an accusation, number one, and a warning, number two, to the rich oppressors whose end is near. What is the end he has in mind? The end of a lifestyle of luxury and wealth, rather misuse of their wealth, that has been accumulated on the backs of the poor. So the end is near for this misuse of wealth and this lifestyle of oppression and exploitation. The end is near. And James is going to go full-blown Old Testament social justice prophet on him. The third reason it's the end is near is because he's going to also not just accuse and warn the rich, he's going to remind the poor We see this shift of focus away from the rich and he's going to turn with a pastoral voice to the poor and he's going to remind the poor that, look, the end of your suffering is also near. And so the end is near for this lifestyle of those who have oppressed and the end is near of the suffering of those who are oppressed. And that's what we'll see in James chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. And I think we can find ourselves in both paragraphs, in both situations. I believe in James, he's a mentor for us too. And he can call us to reevaluate our ways in which we have been like the rich and the ways in which we need to be reminded like the poor. So let's look here in James chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. I'm going to read it all, and then we're going to uh, just spend the next few moments kind of tiptoeing back through it. Look with me in verse 1. Now listen, you rich people. 
Off to a great start, y'all. It gets better. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. But the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence, but you have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Then watch this shift in tone in verse 7. You with me? Be patient then, brothers and sisters. So earlier he was talking to you rich people. And now he's shifting tones and he says, Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm. Because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. This is the word of God for the people of God and all God's people said, thanks be to God. Amen. So we are here in James. And do you see when the end is near for the rich and powerful, the lifestyles of the rich and famous, the end is near. He goes full blown Old Testament social justice prophet on the rich. And what James is doing, if you've tracked with us in this whole series, is he's just tying off and finding the climax to what he's been saying throughout the entire letter. If you have the physical Bible, flip back to James chapter 1. I'm going to read it briefly here on the screen. You find this in James 1, 9 to... What is it? James 1, 9 to 12. You see a very similar teaching that James had already introduced. Let's look there. Sorry, Ben. Maybe I should read the, this. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation. So you still got that dichotomy, right? Of the poor and the rich. And he says, because they will pass away like a wildflower. He says, the sun rises with scorching heat and it withers the plants. It blossom fails and its beauty is destroyed. Do you hear again how he's saying all the nice things that they have are going to come to nothing? We just read a similar thing in James chapter 5, but he keeps going. He says the rich will even fade away while they go about their business. So he's also saying, look, hold on, the ones who are rich, their end is sure, and their riches are impermanent, and then he offers another reminder to the poor. This is just like we read in chapter 5. He said, blessed is the one who what? Perseveres under trial." 
Because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. James is coming to a climax in James chapter 5 to what he's been saying all along. I want you to just write down or even flip in these next moments and look for yourself at James 2, 5 to 7. And he says, hey, listen, hasn't God chosen the poor to be lifted up? So what James is saying is giving witness to this great reversal of the kingdom of God. And it looks like this, okay? Here's how the world looks. Watch me. Here's my world, okay? And guess who's at the tippy-tippy top? Who's the one percenters? It is the wealthy, the rich. And in James's day, he is talking about the landowners, okay? Because in James's day, for generations, the Jewish people who had been occupied and oppressed by the Roman government, they had basically lost any land that they had ever had. Not unlike today, Israel's still trying to fight for some real estate. Well, in James's day, basically any of God's people who were Jewish had no land. And all the land had been sucked up and swept up by the Roman aristocracy or the Jewish aristocracy. And so you've got at the tippy top of the world's pyramid, you've got the one percenters of landowners who owned all the land and everybody else trickled down in a big fat middle were just scraping by as day laborers and tenant farmers. So they didn't go to work at IT firms. They didn't go to work as lawyers and doctors and merchants. No, the merchants were up here and they owned the land and it sat somewhere over there and they lived somewhere way over there and they had this big palatial lifestyle in which they drank and ate and lived off of the backs of those who were working their fields way over there. They're the ones at the tippy top. Everybody else falls in line as just scraping by trying to work the fields they don't own. So day laborers, not unlike the day laborers right up here at Miller and, uh, and Kingsley, they're waiting and hoping that today they could get a day's wage. How many of you are starting to think back on Jesus' parables when he's talking about tenant farmers? Or he's talking about when they come and he gives them a day's wage. This is the world in which Jesus and James occupied. And it's not really that different from our day today. People are always paycheck to paycheck. And they're hoping they get picked up for the day. Or maybe they're not a day laborer, they're a tenant farmer, and they're the ones who are actually investing and paying what little they have to earn a share of the crops that these wealthy landowners are going to get. So you have the day laborers working the fields, and then you also have some tenant farmers who are paying in, buying in, in hopes that they could receive a kickback when the harvest came. So what James is doing is he's saying, here is the world in which you live in. But in James 1 and in James 2 and in James 5, he is giving witness to this. You've got the one percenters up top, the day laborers, tenant farmers, your garden variety person trying to make it, who are populating the first century church. And at the very bottom, you have slaves, lepers, prostitutes, and all that. When Jesus came, and what James is bearing witness to, is Jesus took the world by the, both sides and he cranked the wheel and he turned the entire world upside down. Tonight in our call to worship, we read the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor. 
Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the peacemakers who are not violently revolting against the one percenters. Blessed are all the people who have not, for they will have in God's kingdom. And so what God is doing in Jesus of Nazareth is He's taking the world and He's spinning it around and what He's doing is setting in motion what He's been doing since the beginning of time. And that is reaching out to the marginalized, the lost, the left out, and He's saying there is room for you here. If you go back to Israel, you see that James is not only um, doing his own thing in this letter, talking about woe to you rich and bless you poor. What we see in Scripture is even in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, we see that God's people were supposed to be the welfare system for those people who have nothing. And we see laws in Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy where he says, Woe to you if you're not paying the day laborers. Woe to you if you're not paying the tenant farmers. Because what you're doing is you're killing them because they need their daily bread. And do you know that when Jesus taught us to pray for our daily bread... God often gives us that daily bread 99.99% of the time through someone who has been moved to offer it. And so you rich people who are withholding the daily bread in these wages are starving them that day. And you do it the next day and the next day and the next day and the next day. You not only have a cycle of poverty, you have even death and their blood on your hands. And that's what James says in verse 4. Do you see it with me? Let me make sure it's verse 4. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields or harvest your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. This is not new news. From day one, God has always been especially close to the poor and widowed and orphaned and downcast and His church ought to be right there with Him. The failure of the American church is that we have not cared about the people that God cares about. And so do you know that this paragraph, James 5, 1-6, has lit South America on fire in the last hundred years? Because what happens is, when they're living in this world, in this plight, where they're trying to be day laborers, they're trying to make ends meet, they're relying on daily bread, and when it's continually up top with the one percenters, they cry out to God, and it's even set in motion a scholarly theology called the liberation theology. They take James chapter 5, and they see, as we've just discussed, All throughout Scripture, God is a great liberator. And when they say the cries of these wages are crying out against you, but guess what? God's heard it. He's always been hearing it. In the Exodus, if you look at the biblical text, James is picking up that tradition, and it said that when they were enslaved by Egypt, the cries of God's people reached God's ears. So God hears and is listening to the people that we are not listening to. And so this is why this is so inflammatory and incendiary. And who is the rich that he's talking about? It's these landowners that I believe are outside of the community of faith. And it begs the question, well, James, you're writing this letter to a bunch of churches. Are they even listening? 
We don't know, but the answer is probably not. But you know who is listening? The poor and the oppressed. The day laborers who have come from the fields, who show up to raise a glass in Jesus' name, and to toast that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not, and to share communion with brothers and sisters who are dirt poor and wouldn't have eaten if they didn't show up to church. Do you know that if we are going to look more and more like a neighborhood church, we are going to have to be feeding those who may not have fed themselves had they not shown up in our gathering. Do you know that I believe that it is God's call for our church to pay attention to what God pays attention to and that are the needs that will not be met if we're not meeting them? And I'm talking about physical needs, relational needs, because even the affluent neighbors in Richardson and Wiley and Dallas and Garland are fill in the blank. Even the affluent got it together. They've got enough daily bread. There is still something that needs meeting. And I think in our culture, in our society, it is a community that is authentic and embraces them and remembers their name when they show up if Saturday after Saturday. And I believe that our church is great at that and we can still get better. But we need to pay attention to the ones God pays attention to. Why? Because he has turned the world upside down. So he says to the rich, he warns them, be ready because the judge is coming. And he uses this way to say, you've been piling up all this wealth, but all you're piling up is judgment. Because it's not just the problem that they're wealthy. Because every one of us in here, in the world's standards, is wealthy. Because even our poor is not like Bungoma Kenya's poor. I'm just being real. I'm not excusing the poverty that grips millions of Americans, but I'm saying that our poor is not like their poor. And so we have to be mindful that, okay, it's not like everybody just go be poor and that wealth is bad. The problem is the misuse of wealth. Do you see that at the beginning in his indictment, his accusation that the end is near for their lifestyle? Look in verse 3. He says, your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you. He's basically saying this stuff, if you ask the rich, hey, is your suits moth-eaten? And they say, no, dude, look how swanky this is. Look at my closet, dude. Let me see your gold and silver. Is it, is it rusted? I'm pretty sure gold and silver doesn't rust. What is James saying? He's embodying that prophetic voice that we see so much in the Old Testament where they speak in such a way that, look, you may, it may not look like it on the surface, but when push comes to shove, it may as well be moth-eaten and corroded and rusted because it is impermanent. And so for the wealthy American here in this room, I think the call for us is to consider, are we finding our faith? Are we finding our security? Are we misusing our wealth? Because we are constantly driven by the need for more. And I believe the question for us tonight is how much is enough? How much is enough? 
Remember, James is speaking to the one percenters, the wealthy landowners. I know there ain't no one percenters, but for us, the question is how much is enough? Because the indictment on them is they've hoarded it in the last days. And the last days means that God's kingdom has come. It's been inaugurated in Jesus. The Holy Spirit has come. We're living in the last days. So you better prepare yourself as we just sang. May we be a church that's ready for him when he returns. And when Jesus returns, would he find our bank accounts empty? when we go to meet him at the end of our lives? Or will we find it being given to others? Or are we Scrooge McDuck that just wants to swim in the gold pools in his castle or mansion? The indictment in the first paragraph is you've misused your wealth as the first desire, the first place of trust, the first place in your heart. You've hoarded and you've cheated and you've misused it even to the point of violence by starving them or probably actually murdering them because if you don't value them enough to pay them, you're not going to value them enough to actually care for their life. If, if they're just indispensable to you, you just kill them if they start to pipe up. How much is enough? How much is enough? Would we be a church ready for him? And he says, you've even killed and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. And here's another teaching thread that James has throughout. When the rich are winning, when you're oppressed by your boss or your fill-in-the-blank, don't return oppression. The oppressed have no claim as followers of Jesus to go and oppress others. He says, they've murdered these innocent ones, these righteous ones, who've not opposed you. In James chapter 1, if you look back, he's saying, look, yes, you're suffering, but his message is the same throughout the letter, and it's the same throughout Scripture, and it's be patient. Be patient. Before we move on, I just want to pause for a second. And I just want to take a brief moment to say, you know what one corrective I believe that God has given the church as a whole is the season of Lent. I just want to pause before we shift gears and talk about the oppressed. And I want to talk about the season of Lent. Because I've wrestled this week with how much is enough. And I believe that when we step into this new season that begins March 1st, which is Ash Wednesday, I want to just call us as a church to pay attention as we enter into this season, because Lent is a season of fasting and prayer. And it's all a way of refocusing our attention on what is driving us and to refocus our attention on God. And so what uh, you see most often in Lent is that people will give something up. How many of you have given something up for Lent? How many of you have Catholic friends and family members that you know give something up for Lent, right? What are some of the things they give up for Lent? What? Meat. Every Catholic on Friday doesn't eat meat. That's why the fish places are packed. I love going to Fish Shack, and there are Catholics that own it right there on Plano Road in Richardson. There's one in Plano, too. And that place is packed with some Catholics on Fridays. What else do people give up? Candy sweets. There's a former Catholic right there. Have you ever given up chocolate? Can I ask you that? 
Lent is a time of fasting and repentance, too. I heard something that, that, that I think is really powerful. I've heard that some, someone uh, has committed to Lent to give something away every day of Lent for 40 days. And I just thought, wow. Because we may not be the one percenters when James says you've hoarded all this wealth, but man, look at our garages and closets we've hoarded. And I just thought, wow, what would it look like to declutter my space? Would it help me to declutter the desire and drive for more, 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 more? I believe the follower of Jesus, our mantra is, Jesus, you are enough, and Lord, may we have enough. That's why he said, give us our daily bread, not our monthly bread, our yearly bread, our nest egg bread. Because he wants to cultivate a life of dependence on God and God's people. When we go into Lent, we start with Ash Wednesday. And it reminds us, like James does, of the impermanence of our stuff in our life. And so when we do an Ash Wednesday service, how many of you have done an Ash Wednesday service? If you did one in this church way back in the day, you got some ashes on you, y'all. We had to mix the oil, so I've heard, and you buy it all. And the Catholics got it down because they do it, and they just give you a little smudge right here. But I heard back in the day, we'd have some oil dripping down people's faces. You know, we, we tried. But it reminds you that from ashes you come, and from ashes you'll return. And the stuff of life is impermanent. And this is a healthy Christian thing. We talked about it last time in James. We just go about saying we, it's all going to be the same. It's not. So it refocuses us on our mortality and it refocuses on how much is enough. And it really tunes us in. People also don't just give up stuff. They take on stuff. And so what we're doing as a church that Carol was talking about earlier is we're asking you to read the Gospel of Matthew every day together as a church. How many of you participated in this last year if you were around? We're going to provide bookmarks next week that are going to have the scripture reading. So if you don't buy this book that's $16 and don't let money be an issue, talk to me about it. If you don't buy the physical copy of the book or you don't buy it on your e-reader, we'll give you a bookmark and you can at least track along with what everybody's reading. And then we're going to gather together in our neighborhood groups and we're going to ask questions that Caravan is uh, designing and writing for us. And it's a way to see what's challenging you. Why this? Why that? Why do you think Jesus did that? How did this make you feel? How did it help you love God? How did it help you love others? All of these questions because Lent refocuses us. So let's refocus on James. And we want to look again after he's basically embodied Jesus' teaching to, uh, to, you know, for daily bread and don't store up treasures in heaven. These guys have been storing up judgment. And the question for James's day laborers and tenants in his community is, God, are you listening? So James says, be patient. You see that in verse 7? Be patient. There are two sides of the story throughout every single page of Scripture. And the first part of the story goes like this. God's people have always been waiters. Not, not at Chili's. Waiters. They are a waiting people. Think back with me, okay? So like, Abraham, when's my kid coming? I'm already 80 years old or whatever it is. Dude, I've been waiting a long time. And he wanted to take matters into his own hands. 
Then you have, even later, you have, God, when are you going to release us from slavery? When, 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 when? Then you have, as soon as they're freed, they're all stoked about it, and then they look around and say, oh, nuts, we're in a desert. And they waited and wandered, waited and wandered, waited and wandered, waited and wandered. Then you have God's people eventually, you know, get kicked out and exiled. And they say, God, we're waiting. When can we come home? When can we come home? And then you have, you know, God, we're waiting for your king that all these prophets have been talking about. Waiting, 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 waiting. And now we today, tonight, are awaiting people too. We just sang, even so come. We sang, oh Lord, even while we're standing here, I'll stand my ground because the message at every turn of the story is be patient. Because the second part of the story, the second bit of the story is this. God is faithful. When Abraham was waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting, and even though he took matters into his own hand, what did God do? He made good on what he said. Abraham would have loved him to do it way sooner. Don't we all? Moses and the Israelites waiting and waiting and waiting to be released. He heard the cries of the oppressors and what happened? God is faithful. He delivered them. Then they go straight through the Red Sea and they show up in the desert and they're waiting and they're groaning and they're waiting and waiting and God is faithful and He eventually brings them into a home. And then they blow it big time. That's a big chunk of our Bible here, just like we blow it. And they're waiting and waiting when they get kicked out. When can I move back home? And God is faithful. And then they say, God, when's your king coming? When's your king coming? When's your king coming? Guess what? You all know the end of the story. God is what? Faithful. Jesus comes. But here's the thing is that this waiting spell is always longer than they wanted. So why would it be any different for us? But the story is still the same, and the story is that God is faithful. And so we've got to remember His faithfulness in the past to be reminded of His faithfulness for the future. So here's the thought experiment. Because we come from a family of people, of waiters, what in this moment are you waiting for? Like, you don't have to say it. Don't say it out loud. You don't have to say it. But you know what it is. You need money, you need a job, you need a new place to live, you need to be well, you need to be healed, you need this relationship restored, you need just something tomorrow. What are you waiting for? Okay? We all can get there pretty quickly. We're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting. Now the sub-question there is, are we waiting patiently? Because that's the big, big, big caveat. Are we waiting patiently? Are we standing firm, as he says in the text we read tonight? Are we persevering? Remember this illustration he gives right after verse 7, be patient. He says, think of the farmer. What does it look like to wait patiently? It looks like a farmer who does what he can, and he lays the seed, and he tills it, and he does everything that he can control in order that he would surrender it to what he can't control, and he waits and prays for God to send the rain. What more can the farmer do to will the wheat to come out of the ground? Not one thing. You can go to Home Depot and buy everything you want. So as we wait, what are you waiting for? How do you wait patiently? You wait and pray. And it doesn't mean you're impassive. It means you can cry out. Did you notice that when the rich are oppressing these people, the oppressed are crying out? But they're not acting out in violence. 
And that's what always got God's people messed up. Like Abraham to Israel when they start to act. And that's why God reminds them. So here's my second question. Not just what are you waiting for. Here's my second question. God is trying to remind us. Think back to the last year. Just one year. Today's February 18th. Think back to February of last year. Can you pinpoint one or two things right now in your mind that you are waiting for? What were the things you were telling your friends and family and community to pray for? Now, maybe you can populate a list of half a dozen things. Let me tell you this. Have you ever gone back and realized, oh my gosh, God actually did what I prayed? But because we're impatient in the waiting, we even get impatient in the aftermath and we say, oh yeah, thanks, but now I'm on to this next thing. The Old Testament is replete with festivals and reminders. Remember, remember, remember. You can't go two psalms without going back to the time he delivered them from the Egyptians. And guess what? He's talking to people hundreds of years later. But he's reminding of God's faithfulness then so that you can trust him in the future. And so think back a year. Think back five years. And you said, God, I waited and waited and waited. And he's like, but look, 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 look. And then in the places where he hasn't met you where you want, you go back to the end of this passage we looked at here in verse 11, and it says the Lord is compassionate and merciful. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. So we say all the time in this church, we need to pray believing that God can, and we're asking that God will. And if he doesn't, take verse 11 and write it on your wall and say the Lord is compassionate and merciful because while you wait impatiently, the enemy in your own heart wants to tell you anything but. God doesn't love you. He's not doing this. He's withholding this from you. And you see Jesus constantly breaking down that narrative. And he says, God knows what you need before you even ask. And what kind of father, when their son asks for bread, he gives him a scorpion. If God's not giving you what you want, perhaps it's because God knows what you need, number one, before you even ask, but He knows what you need even if you don't. You might think you do, but God is at work in so many ways, in so many variables. And so another thing we say in this church all the time is when you're oppressed, when you're suffering, the better question than why God is what God are you up to? That's what it looks like for the prophets and Job. Job had everything knocked down. He had every reason to grumble and complain. And you know what he did? He grumbled, he complained, he doubted, he questioned, and it gives all of you lovely people permission to do the same. Take me to lunch, take me to coffee, and gripe about this, that, and the other. It gives you permission to cry out to God. God, what's going on? What's going on? What's going on? But I believe that we see in Job, when God meets him, I believe that what happens is that Job's fire of his faith was never quite extinguished. Because he was still crying out. And if you're crying out, somewhere deep inside you, you think somebody's listening. So he uses this strange example of Job to say that when you're waiting, the better question is not why, 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 why. It's what, God, are you forming in me? What, God, are you doing that I can't see? That's the better question. And that's why you got to lean into this community because Job had some terrible friends. Would we be a church with good friends to say, I don't know. I am so, so, so sorry. I think I've shared this story before, but when I was in seminary, a professor shared a story that I will never, ever, ever forget. And it was so much a gift for me, young in my life and ministry, because he shared a story 
of a mistake that by God's grace I wouldn't have to make. And he was at a funeral and he was speaking to a woman whose husband of many years had just died and she was crying after the wake and after the food and after everyone left. She was sitting on a pew, not unlike this one, and she was weeping. And he came alongside her and he put his arm, kind of patted her on the shoulder and she said, you know, this is just really hard. And this pastor, who is my professor, said, well, you know that he's in a better place. And she collected herself. She kind of wiped the tears away. And she looked up at him and says, I know that pastor, but I want him home for dinner when I get there. And that was so powerful because it gives us permission to wait in the chaos and to live in the chaos and cry out and say, God, I wish that I could come home and he'd be there. God, I wish that what I'm waiting for would happen now. But the thing that is replete throughout Scripture and that James is reminding us is that we have got to be patient and sometimes your patience looks like perseverance. And perseverance is this standing firm where you lean into the community and you lean into Christ rather than run from it because when the storm comes, you want to have some support. But what we want to do is isolate and we want to run. And what we need to remind each other is to say, wait, 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 and trust. Sometimes patience looks like perseverance because we're awaiting people, but never forget the second part of the story and that God is faithful. And if he's not doing what you want, remember he's compassionate and he's full of mercy. And the Lord's coming is near. And when it looks like judgment and oppression and giving the rich not just what they deserve, but what they've chosen because they've lived their lives storing up treasures on earth and not in heaven, God grieves and gives them what they want. But when he comes and when his coming is near, it is a salve and a balm for the poor because he says the end is near to your suffering. And I believe he wants to say that to you tonight. The end is near, the end is near. And it may not be at the end of the kingdom, uh, at the end of this age when the kingdom comes in full. It may be tomorrow, it may be 10 years from now, or it may not be what you thought you were waiting for. But he will meet you and he'll say, I'm faithful and the end will be near. And if it doesn't look like it now, then it's not the end. Because he works all things together for good. So in the meantime, we wait and pray and we trust God. We cry out and we don't retaliate. We entrust ourselves to God. So as we close, I want to leave you with two questions. God, where do I feel oppressed? And I believe our prayer is, hear my cry and liberate me. The second question is, God, what am I waiting for? And maybe Psalm 37, we can borrow those words and say, may I be still and trust in you as I wait. May we remember His faithfulness in the past so we can be reminded of His faithfulness for the future. And may we be a church who waits patiently and waits together until our Lord Jesus comes and His kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven in fullness. Lord, thank You for this time. Thank You for all the things it took to get us here this evening. Thank You for this beautiful day. Thank You for Your presence in us, among us, 
and even through us. We ask, Lord, that as we look to you and as we wait, that you would form in us a people for your own possession, a people who know that you are good and that you give us what we need when we need it. So, Lord, as we respond tonight, would you meet with us and bless us and then send us into our week. We pray all this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Remain standing for the benediction. Come, Holy Spirit. We pray that your fruit would be in us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Go in peace.